Welcome to Across the Pond. My name's Chris Lawson over in the UK and I'm joined Across the Pond by Samuel Moni. Say hello, Sam. Hey, Chris. How are you, sir? Good. Yeah, very well. Thank you. Excellent. I'm super excited. We've got a great guest lined up for today's show, so I'm really looking forward to getting into it. We have indeed, yeah. We've got Arjo Ghosh and I met Arjo sort of, I would say, probably about 2002, 2003, so a long old time ago now. Um, Really inspirational guy. Uh, Sets him out as an entrepreneur and non-executive director. He's got a great new startup which we'll get into called electrictogether.com and that sort of helps people make better decisions about buying electric cars and associated products. But where I met him was a company called Spannerworks, uh, right at the advent of the digital wave and uh, it went on to do incredible things and uh, he'd take you through a bit of that story and coming out of that he then has also gone on a really interesting path as well doing a lot of work with the University of Sussex as a member of their council and also a trustee of a audio active a Brighton based charity that does work with young people helping them with music skills experience and talent development so Arjo welcome uh, thank you thanks Chris and uh, hi Samuel yeah, we, we, I was just reading through your profile there, and there was just some fascinating things, and you seem to have been at the cutting edge of all things search and internet and finding that gap in the market. But I'll, I'll let Chris kick us off, and let's get into it. So I, I remember those early days, that first digital wave, and and I was at EMAP of the time uh, looking after their digital marketing activity, and there was this thing called Google coming around the corner, And I thought, actually, we need some expertise and help in terms of understanding search marketing. And and that's that's how we got to know each other. But why don't you take us through that first digital wave and how you anticipated that SEO trend and, and tell us what happened then? Well, I mean, my my kind of Internet story started in 96, 97, when I was working in a desktop publishing studio in Covent Garden in central London called Neil's Yard DTP. And whilst it sort of had an inauspicious name and, and a few mats in it, it turned out to be really seminal for lots of people that worked there because it was the first time that desktop user interfaces, if you like, democratised the use of PCs, right, which was the advent of Apple. And in that studio, we had graphic designers and um, filmmakers doing credits. We had print, people doing magazines, books. I once worked on the backdrop for the Royal Opera House when they first started doing some digital stuff. So we had this real kind of mishmash of technology of print moving to digital. And the man that owned the studio, who who had quite a radical story of his own, he shared an internet connection with a local anarchist. And it was this cable across a couple of roofs in Covent Garden that came down through our window. And that was my first experience of sort of watching Usenet groups load incredibly slowly and at that point there it was an incredible feeling of being connected and you know just thinking wow there's all this information out there which in those days was clearly not a lot but it was so much more than what you could access via sort of four tv channels Mm. and now very controlled sort of radio waves so we didn't we didn't have that many routes so things started to explode for me the moment I, I saw the internet but I didn't think it would, at that stage, grow as rapidly because, of course, we had a lot of technical problems and things were slow and not everyone had connections. So it was very, very early on that I, I sort of saw an opportunity, but I didn't quite know how fast it would go. But there was something there that really excited me. 
how did you refine that down and sort of think, right, where am I going to focus? Yeah, well, um, I, I was very unemployable, really, I guess, <laughs> always. But certainly a lot of people, when you talk about being kind of, I call it unmentorable, actually. You know, I don't really try and mentor anyone else. I do, obviously, young people, it's great to mentor. But, but at that stage, I was not looking for work because I didn't feel like I wanted to work for anyone else. And I carried on going down the techn- technical route because that's the bit that excited me, that I could kind of hide behind a screen a bit, if you like, but we could start coding and we started coding. We started building websites and, you know, learning HTML from the ground up, which I did. And we quickly saw that the the website design stuff, although it was interesting, was incredibly limited and we went into much more sort of heavier coding. And that's really the precursor to the moment where I saw search as this incredible opportunity because we were doing coding and we understood, if you like, the bolts, the nuts, the pile of wires on the floor, which people sort of imagined as the internet, which you didn't know where the two endpoints were. We kind of understood the technicalities and how it worked. And that really helped understand how search works. Was it a feeling then when you thought, actually, we're onto something? Or did you still feel you were muddling along until sort of a little bit later? That's a great question. So, Google launched in 98, and in 96, 97, we were doing some quite heavy duty Java programming. We built some immersive technology sort of from the ground up with this amazing Russian programmer that I met in a sweet shop, and he built this Java-based immersive software. I then, at one day, after sort of losing sleep around the business model of coding, in that you never really make money until you're 85% and upwards utilised, because you're paying high salaries and, of course, a lot, a lot of time is wasted too. And I asked around, there was five of us at the time, and I said, um, what, what search engine are you all using? And everyone was using Google around the office. And although the amount of information in it was limited and AltaVista still maybe had more to begin with or Yahoo still had a kind of comfort blanket of a classified ad system that you knew where you were clicking, you know, Google was obviously just a a game changer. And literally that night, I decided to change the business model of me and a few coders into being kind of tech marketing people. And I decided that the business model would be about us connecting consumers to big brands. And I also decided that they would pay us by results and pay us on performance and not by kind of project fees. So that was in that was in 1998. So this entrepreneurial spirit seemed to be, you know, uh, in, intrinsic to you. And and tell us a bit more about how you how do you define that? If you say you're an entrepreneur, how do you respond to that when people accuse you of it? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. It's it's become um, a kind of thing that's that's now socially acceptable, isn't it? To be an entrepreneur, <laughs> right? It, exactly. It's even positive. You're not really kind of this weirdo that doesn't mm. quite fit in with the the rest of the you know career life that we we aspire to. I went to a hippie primary school, which, which we might talk about later a bit, um, but it was wild. And my secondary school was an inner city comprehensive in, in an area of London that was very economically deprived, although culturally very rich. I mean, I went to Polytechnic, which, which is now called university, but I mean, then it was Polytechnic in Liverpool. And they wanted to put a plaque on the school saying I'd got to university, basically, wow. because no one did from my school. But in our, in our first school assembly, they were telling us about um, O-levels, which are now called GCSEs. 
and they were saying, well, you need to be thinking about what you're doing because when you get a job for people, these exams will be very, very um, important. And I put my hand up in this assembly of three or 400 kids. I had long hair, sandals on. I looked wild. Like, I mean, I, I looked like Mowgli at the time. <laughs> I put my hand up and I said, um, I'm not going to work for anybody else. I'm going to work for myself. I didn't even really know what that meant. But I certainly had a spirit in me from 11 years old that was kind of, I couldn't deny it. I couldn't. That's why I say I was unemployable. And I think the internet captured quite a lot of us into that, you know, quite a lot of similar people the internet gave a home for. Well, tell us a bit more about how your upbringing influenced your career path or the choices you made. So, I mean, I kind of believe in, uh, in, in genetics without knowing anything about them that much, but I'm from mixed parentage. So my father was Indian and came over in the late 50s to the UK. My mother, uh, British, and they separated when I was really young, under three years old. So I didn't know my father that much until I was older and, and I went back to India regularly and saw him from sort of 16 onwards. And I always felt that I had a the mixture of the two things. There was a kind of freedom of spirit on the English side, which represented itself when my parents split up. My mum went kind of down a hippie route. My dad was a chartered accountant and a finance director in companies, so they couldn't have been more different. And it was probably good that they did separate. And I felt that the two sides of me have always been there in that my mum went down this wild hippie route where we went to a school that was created in South London called Kirkdale School. And it was uh, what was called a free school, which meant that the children ran the school. Um, <laughs> and, and this is a primary school we're talking. So for those that don't know the UK primary system, it's age five five to 11, so young children. And the, the teachers didn't really mediate that much between lots of stuff. They let us get on with it. So at worst, there was all sorts of bullying and kind of risky behavior. At best, we had crazy things like marriages. We had gay marriages where kids would profess love to each other and they'd have a wedding, we'd do a wedding. But then we, we, we had women's rights stuff going on. We had a really strong sense of self-responsibility. So if you did something wrong, you would be brought up at the school meeting and the other kids would decide what your recompense was. And that stayed with me. And every action I had, had a personal responsibility, if you like. And then I went to secondary school, which was in the state school system. And I couldn't believe how self-responsibility didn't seem to be a thing at all. It all seemed to be blame someone else and, and fight the teachers and, and don't listen in class and mess about as much as you can, <laughs> which I did a lot of that. But it was quite shocking, actually, culturally, to move from kind of a hippie kind of freedom of doing what you want, which included a lot of learning, but learning via play, and then into a system where no one wanted to learn. As you think about those experiences of the sort of the freedom and the self-directed to perhaps more um, institutional and structured, which parts of those experiences do you think you tap into into now that have helped you in, in your endeavours? Well, I left London in um, 97, 98, 96, no, so late, late, late 96, 97. I left London, I came to Brighton and Brighton had a whole kind of community of older hippies and people that I recognised from my childhood, if you like. I felt I, I understood where they were coming from. And it had quite an alternative bohemian culture. It still does to a certain extent. And here I felt that there was a very lax approach to work in a lot of companies here. And I founded Spannerworks here. And my feelings around self-responsibility, I always 
uh, I think, practiced in that, you know, we'd all go out and party hard after work some nights and the next morning I'd be the first in and I wouldn't really suffer in my work kind of mode. I wouldn't really suffer excuses too much because I felt that you make your choices and it's down to you to be good at what you do, you know. We were kind of, if you like, the culture that's emanated out of Silicon Valley from big tech where you have kind of, you know, fruit bowls and massages and and a million other kind of staff perks, which came out of that needing to retain highly expensive, highly, you know, rare to find programmers, essentially. That has dissipated into the whole kind of agency community, which I'm sure you're both kind of recognise, in that it's all about the culture of the agency. And I strongly felt that it was all about the work the agency did and the culture would come with it. So we just set out to do great work for clients and stay very client-centric. I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because you, you came from sort of quite a unstructured approach, some people would argue in some ways. However, that keeping really tight towards those principles and that determination, I think, really sort of shines through. And mm-hmm. and, and Spannerworks, then you sort of took that on, so it almost became a sort of a full-service agency and, and you sold it to iCrossing, Yes, that's right. Yeah. So we built out, we brought in a whole social media side to what we did because you could see that search was evolving. We used to research the IP that Google filed in America to see what they were thinking of. And we could see where kind of content was going, if you like, and and then social media. So we sold to a company called iCrossing, which we then became part of a very large independently owned agency. So it was about 1100 of us, I think, at that stage across I think there were seven offices in the US, seven or eight offices in the US, and we had UK and we bought an agency in Germany. And we started building that out. So that was 2007. And I exited iCrossing in 2010 when we sold into Hearst. So iCrossing is now subsumed into the Hearst Corporation. So what's next then, Arjo? What's the next big marketing transformation? Do you keep yourself awake at night thinking, God, I, I got that one right? Am I going to get the next one right? Yeah. I mean, look, where are we at the moment? I mean, I mean, I think we can learn a lot from politics. I think that, you know, news and current affairs and how politics is morphing, kind of adapting to the digital age is a bit like in the first phase of the internet, financial services and travel were the two sectors. If we exclude pornography, which clearly got its act together very quickly online, it followed the money. But travel and financial services very much were the first kind of big corporate, if you like, success stories with digital, weren't they? Mm-hmm. So you could you could book a flight and you could book a holiday and you could take out your car insurance, etc. And there was a, a transactional nature of that. But if we look at now, we see that obviously it's a way of life, it's normal, it's it's normalized, it's in every everything that we do. And now I'm interested in seeing how information travels throughout the internet because I think the biggest threat to, if you like, brand, well, if you if, traditional marketing, and there are still many, many people coming out of marketing courses and marketing degrees and schools that still perhaps don't understand the data and the customer data as much as um, they need to. But an example where online marketing is still, you know, in its infancy is I, if I go and buy something, a pair of trainers, I still get chased around the internet after my purchase with adverts trying to sell me that pair of trainers. It's insane. And that is decades on. We are now 20 years on 
and that stuff's still happening. And if you look at conversion rates in e-commerce, they are still very, very low. So that suggests to me that there's still enormous problems in, in the way that we market. So I think if we look into politics, what we see is, is, is so much information going into private networks, into peer-to-peer, mm. into encrypted messaging, into, into closed groups. And I think that is a very, very interesting trend for marketers to understand. Did you sort of feel, sort of obviously, something that you did was incredible success and then you sort of came out of that corporate life? Did it almost feel like, right, I've got a, a difficult second album now, what's next? Or did you take time to reflect or just jump straight back in? No, I found it really difficult transition. I was always about the company and the success of the company. Mm-hmm. And I pushed myself very hard through that time and I didn't really you could say enjoy the journey I didn't really you know stop and do other things I really put everything into the company after that and I think anyone that exits out of a kind of an entrepreneurial life and suddenly gets some money which I'd never had that took quite a lot of adaptation actually I thought I thought that oh it would be great and you'd have time free and hey what could go wrong you know (laughs) and actually what I missed was just working you know so I built up a kind of portfolio career in, in coaching and advising kind of executives, people in agencies, obviously, and latterly went on to sort of charitable boards and, as you mentioned earlier, the university and, and things like that. And that was very, very rewarding. I don't necessarily want to be that person at the, at the helm anymore. So, so that's quite a big change, Chris. I was hoping you are going to tell a story of buying a, a yacht or something like that <laughs> and, you know, it's blowing 80% on boats and things but I didn't hear that so it seems like you're reasonably sensible with it but coming back to this this new new endeavor uh, that you've you've set up is doing more work in sort of the green tech and using tech for good space that seems to be a front of mind for you so can you talk a little bit about you know what's driving those efforts right so I've been a big petrol head all my life I love cars I love raced cars there's there's your yacht answer I raced um, cars for about five years after I left the business. And you go. You, know, you go around in circles, you drive fast, you crash a lot, spend a lot of money fixing the car that you crashed. It was great fun, right? And I've always been interested in the industry and the car industry. We worked with lots of big car brands um, when we were doing the digital work. And I went to a trade show at the end of 2019 and another one in early 2020. It was a trade show around electric cars, and energy and obviously energy energy products and suppliers but particularly cars and for the last couple of years i felt that there's something really big brewing with with cars and electrification and i went to this um conference and i've been there an hour or two and i told a colleague of mine to look you've got to go to this conference and he went with a car we were working with a client as well at the time a big energy um supplier and uh, after a couple of hours, we met up and I said, tell me, how does this feel? And he said, felt like the internet did in the late 90s. And that's exactly how I felt. I had goosebumps in that, in that conference. And I thought, wow, there's something really interesting happening here. And it's not about cars, really, although, you know, they are the, the, the thing that we'll buy. They are, they are the impact that they will have, right? So... I never felt, I don't know about you, but in my family, changing our light bulbs didn't really engage my children into climate change or me. But as soon as you start looking at the electrification of cars and transport, especially public transport, fleets, a freight, and you know, what DHL and UPS and Amazon are doing around electrification will have material impact on, on air quality, on CO2 emissions, etc. 
And so I just felt, wow, this is a bit like the iPhone coming into telecommunications in that an electric car is smart, it's connected, it's full of data. And Elon Musk obviously shows the way there because he understands that uh, the car is a starting point to many other connected products. Tell us a bit more about this feeling because that, that's an interesting insight there in terms of you you went to an event, you had an experience and you kind of looking around and hang on a minute, this feels different. Talk us through how that kind of happens and what, what you do when that happens. Right. So, for example, one of the British unicorn energy companies is called Octopus Energy. Mm-hmm. And Octopus is one of the challenger kind of uh, energy utility companies who have come up out of really nowhere and by selling sustainable energy or guaranteed from green sources. And they do it in a really entrepreneurial, really kind of rule-breaking way, if you like. Mm. You know, they, they haven't got the most sophisticated front-end and customer experience, but it's really good and it's really agile and they're constantly innovating. I got the feeling that there were a lot of people willing to break the rules and there was space for challenge and enormous disruption. So we're starting to see a lot of disruption in that market where what will a car manufacturer, an OEM and an original equipment manufacturer, what will what will Mercedes be in the future? You know, what will Volkswagen be in this future? The huge car manufacturers who have clearly been caught behind the curve are pledging to move fully electric in, in many, many cases. Huge, huge car companies. So that will spawn a huge era of disruption around energy insurance, the way that the, that the impact is on your family. Because when I drive in my electric car, my kids, for the first time, are interested in this sort of stuff. They're interested in pollution and CO2 and our energy usage because they can see it happening as we drive. As I'm listening to you and thinking about, you know, earlier parts of your career, you seem to be really good at asking questions, right? <laughs> you, you, you ask the question and then sort of try and, and solve them. So getting those fundamental questions right early on in your career about, what you know, what search do you use and, you know, and getting those. And now you're asking the questions about what do people want and different setups. It seems that is the multiplier, right? Now getting that great question propels the solution or the path that you follow. You know what's so interesting there is I had a conversation with my daughter this morning about knowledge and about whether or not we needed to remember much, you know, if we need to retain a lot of knowledge now. And I said to her, well, I think I don't retain a lot of knowledge anymore. I just know that I can ask the right question and I can normally find the knowledge then if I ask the right question. And I think, Samuel, what you said there is if you like the heart of entrepreneurialism, if you're an entrepreneur, you're constantly trying to solve and outwit and take shortcuts and adapt. But you're doing that through seeking an answer, aren't you, to a challenge. And that's very different from a career in many ways, where you might have a much more kind of corporate approach to what's being solved. Did the success of Spannerworks change you for better or worse, do you think? I think running your own company, especially a high growth company, with lots of people that haven't done what you, you're doing as well, because we couldn't get people that are trained in what we did. So personal development was kind of at the heart of everything. So I think it changed me for the better, but it was a rocky journey. What excites you about entrepreneurs today? I mean, I love the feeling that's emerging now. I mean, the UK is, is for in terms of startup ecosystem, is doing really well, right? It was, it was America, obviously Israel's booming, the UK is, is booming on this. I work as a non-exec director at a co-working company as well. And uh, you see a lot of young people with kind of the confidence that we didn't have when we were 18. 
19. And, I, and in that, I include a lot of young women that have got enormous confidence and don't see limitations to what they can achieve. And that questions, you know, everything that, that the way you approach things as well, because here are these young people, but they've got the tools now. You know, they can sit down and prototype their own idea and lay it out and design it in a package and then go and pitch that themselves. And they can do it really quickly and almost to nothing. That's phenomenal. That's the phenomenal tool set that they have now. So I know some of your other episodes around Agile and Lean, all this stuff is really now understood in a kind of native way by young people. That's good. Whereas we've had to learn a lot of that, I think. We've retrofitted a lot to the way we do business, whereas they're just coming into it and that's how they work. And, and how do you bring diversity into the mix as well, that diversity of ideas? You know, I think as, as men, I'm in my early 50s as a man, I now turn down quite a lot of panel um, invitations in favour. Uh, I always challenge them and say, have you got a woman that can do it instead of me? Um, that's one way that we can start to make change happen, that we disrupt our own comfort, if you like. So I think that's happening more and more, but you still see, you know, conference panels and things and behaviour by men that is just, you know, especially of, of my age group, that is still, you know, dominating conversations and things. So I think we have to look at our own daily practice at work and, and see how we react to things. I think we have to be prepared to be challenged because, as I say, the younger people that are coming through will challenge us and that's got to be welcomed. And I think if you want to encourage diversity, at the heart of it is almost like accepting that I'm probably going to be wrong about a lot of things, mm. you know, and that opens you up to a diversity of challenge and a diversity of thought. But we do struggle with it still. Obviously, there is a lot of herd mentality. There's a lot of companies that hire people like themselves, right? Right, right. So, yeah, you have to bake it in and challenge it in a very deep level. And it often comes after the fact, because in the first year or two, you're just surviving, aren't you? You're winning customers, you're building the company, it's exciting. And then it's like, oh, are we diverse enough, you know? Mm -hmm. So the, the final question I have for then for you is, what's your biggest marketing regret? So that really depends on whether or not I'm measuring it by would I have made more money from it? Would I be more famous for it? Would I have helped more people? We had values in the way that we ran Spannerworks. So I believed for a long time that the media side and the paid media side of marketing was not something I wanted to do. I wanted it to be earned marketing. Mm -hmm. And so, so I wanted us to stand by our content and, and, and earn the attraction, if you like. So we didn't do media. And I think... Actually, in retrospect, had we done that earlier with the smart people that we had in the room, we could have done some brilliant stuff at scale. We were working with huge organizations, you know, Bank of America and British Airways and, you know, huge list of big organizations, EMAP. And, but we weren't doing the paid media side very much at all. So I think we probably could have built that and, and helped help define that and challenge it because it's still not where it should be. RJ, we, we've run out of time today, but that's been fascinating. Absolutely brilliant story. Um, really glad that we had you on. Thanks for your time and, and really looking forward to seeing the success of your new startup over time as well. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Samuel. Really, um, really delighted that you invited me on and it's been a pleasure. Without further ado, have a great week across the pond. So if you're an entrepreneur, rising star or CMO looking for new ideas, find us at marketingtransform.com and on Spotify, Apple, Google and all good podcast platforms.